Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Morning, everyone. Those of you who uh, managed to find yourselves here on a Memorial Day weekend, thank you. Um, glad to have you with us. My name is Tyler, one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope, and let me just pray for us once more and we'll dive into God's Word. Lord, we uh, are so reliant upon you in every area of life. Uh, you remind us in the gospel of how uh, the birds of the air do not um, worry because you provide for them. So too have you provided for your church in your Word. In ways that we don't understand on a day-to-day basis, you provide for us. Um, and we thank you that you've provided ultimately for us in Christ. So we pray today that we would rely on your word in the same way we rely on food for our bodies. Uh, We thank you for your goodness. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Last week, we started a new book together. We finished Matthew after a long time in that book, and we started a book uh, in the Bible called Ephesians. And Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is on the west part of what is now Turkey. Paul knew this church really well. He stayed there for a long time, and he was, for all uh, reasonable purposes, he was the spiritual father of this church. They knew him. They respected him. They cared for him. They found much of their identity in him. And when he wrote this letter, Paul was actually in prison. And so here, imagine yourself being one of the churchmen in Ephesus. Here you're in a city that is uh, big. You are a church which is small. It's only been a couple decades since Jesus was crucified. There hasn't been this huge spread of Christianity to this point. You live in a a city which is far removed from any Jewish influence or the, the center of Israel. You live in a city that is full of pagan religion, and your spiritual father is imprisoned for believing the very thing that you believe. This would probably cause you to have some doubts as to what is it that I'm believing in? What is it that we're doing here? People are starting to think we're weird. We're gathering on this Lord's Day. Our lives look different. Our neighbors uh, think that it's odd that we worship a God who died, who is not here. We could just go to the temple of Diana and worship Diana there. Where is this God? He's not here. They didn't really know what it looked like to move forward. And so Paul began to write this letter to those who don't know what it looks like to move forward. And in doing this, he's writing them to show what Jesus did to save them, what Jesus did to bring them together, and how that salvation shapes the rest of their life. He wants to, in light of our series title, he wants to become occupied, preoccupied with the beauty of the gospel so that they, as the church in this area, would be able to do the work, the occupation, that Jesus had called his church to do. Last week, we opened this letter uh, with uh, this really dense portion of theological worship that Paul included. It was really rich. We, 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 we plowed through it. We looked at all of these rich theological terms, and he reminded them of what was in Christ. Everybody in our world wants redemption. Everybody in our world wants belonging. Everybody wants purpose. And so Paul comes to this church which is being buffeted by culture, and he says, all of those things you have in Christ. You don't need to look anywhere else to find belonging or redemption or purpose. Christ has given you all of that. My redemption is sufficient for you. And now Paul's beginning to pray 
for this church. He goes from theological praise, praise to the glory of God, and now he begins to pray for the church. And this is important because by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we read God's word, God's spirit continues to speak to us. And so in looking at Paul's prayer for this church some 2,000 years ago, this is a church for us, or this is a prayer for us today. This is what we're going to look at. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses three primary terms when he's talking about believers. He uses all three of these terms about equally in the book. But before we get rolling, I want to, to give us an idea of what those terms are. The first is he calls them a church, a Greek word that just means the assembly, the gathering. And at its root, the word also carries this idea of it's not just a gathering, but it's a gathering of called out ones. It's a gathering of people who have been called by God. And so believers are referred to as the church. But then secondly, this church which is gathered is also referred to as a body. A body where believers are members of one another, but also part of the body of Christ. And then lastly, Paul likes to use a term where he calls believers saints. Saints is just a word that means the holy ones. And biblically speaking, saints are not super Christians made into superheroes by the church, that we recognize these people who have done specific miracles or great acts of service to the church and we make them saints. Jesus makes saints. And Jesus makes saints by making them new in their salvation. If you are a Christian, you have been made a saint by Jesus Christ. You have been made holy and set apart by him. And so to be a Christian is to be a saint. And interestingly enough, all three of those descriptors are used by Paul in his prayer that we're going to look at today in the book of Ephesians. We are called the church, we are called the body, and we are called saints. And here's what we're going to see today. In Paul's prayer, we see three things. We see the mark of the saints, the prayer of the saints, and the privilege of the saints. The mark of the saints, the prayer of the saints, and the privileges of the saints. And so because our passage is relatively short, I'm going to read it again for us today. But I want you to listen and see if you can identify some of these substructures that are inside of Paul's writing as we go. So this is beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. If you have your Bible, if not, it will be on the screen. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So we can learn a lot about someone by watching their habits, right? Think about in your own life, what are some habits that you have, maybe foods that you eat, places that you go, things that you do, and what is it that those communicate to those around you about who you are and what you value? For instance, I, uh, I have a coffee shop I often go to, and I've realized as I go there consistently that there are other people who come with a consistency there, and just by observing them, 
you're able to discern a little bit about who they are and what they're doing. For instance, I can discern that some of these people are mothers with young kids because there's a middle school a couple blocks away and they always come from that direction right after the morning drop-off. And so they look, they have the marks of a mom with young kids. Often, other times, there are specific individuals who come with uh, dress clothes on uh, and they have a, like, Leather, mahogany, mahogany's wood, not leather, sounds rich. Those portfolios that make the nice like thwop when they close, you know? And they come and they, they sit there and they meet with other people who've got the thwopping portfolios. And, uh, and I could look at them and I could say, well, they bear the marks of some sort of business class individual. And then they see me and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm there in the middle of the day, I'm reading, I'm writing, I'm meeting with other people and they're probably like, well, he's just unemployed. And, uh, and so we could all make these assessments about who we are and what it is we're doing in life. But Paul is doing that very thing here in this text. He is looking at what marks this church is showing and based off what they're showing, he's making a conclusion. And we see that, those marks in his conclusion in the first point, which are the marks of the saints. These are external identifiers of what Christians are and what they do. And look at how he opens this in verses 15 through 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul begins this prayer, and he says, Because you are so clearly Christian, I'm going to pray Christian things for you. And what are the marks that Paul sees that gives him the confidence that these men and women are indeed clearly Christian? Well, it points to two. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints are the marks of a believer. And so when you think of if someone were to observe your life and your habits and your patterns, where do these marks line up? Where are they visible or not visible in your life? I heard one pastor call this the cross-shaped birthmark of the Christian. In that you have the vertical beam which connects you to God through his redemption. And then you have the horizontal beam that connects us to other men through our redemption as well. So we are united to God and we are united to men. And Paul is here saying, we've heard of your faith, this vertical Uh, this vertical relationship, and we've heard of your love on this horizontal plane that says these people must be Christians. You are faithful in Christ, and you are loving your neighbors, or specifically here, fellow Christians, those saints, those who've been made holy by Jesus Christ. And we're prone, and if you've been Christian for a while and been in church, that tension between faith in Jesus and love for others, we always have a desire to try and elevate one over the other. But we should be really careful to not try to remove tension that the Bible wants to hold true. And we know this. We know Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to see God. We can't get to God without faith. We saw that last week. The way to God is through Jesus Christ, and there is no other way given among men by which we must be saved. But we also know that if you have faith, if what you've behold, beheld is Jesus Christ, you will be changed. You change not only in your relationship with God, but that relationship you have with God changes the relationships you have with others. Consider what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. 
And so for believers, there are some who are naturally gifted in this, this loving of others, and you've probably been blessed by those people, and you know those people. But then there are others of us who often struggle with what this looks like. And sometimes we become defeated in this quest before it even starts. Because we think that if we are to reflect God's love in our world, it means that we know everybody intimately, we are happy all the time, we take in every stray person and stray cat into our home and we feed them. And we realize that that is a big step to get there. And we say, well, that's good. I can't do that right now. I've never done that. I'm not going to be able to just start doing that. And so we feel this sense of disappointment, and we don't even start to make progress in that area. It seems too big, too far off. And I hope that we as a church, as we behold God more clearly, those kind of fruits, this hospitality, this generous love, this other-oriented service in our community begins to pour out from us. But what I want to do, if you're a person who wrestles with what it looks like to love one another, to notice the obtainable first step that Paul provides for you here. That he says this love starts with your fellow saints. It starts here. It starts in this room that you might begin to act more lovingly towards those who are fellowshipping with you at your church. That that's your first step. That maybe today you can reach out to someone you don't know in here and you could introduce yourself. It sounds scary. It sounds countercultural in our world today that you would, might actually meet somebody at church and not just come and listen and leave. But it's hard to love people that you don't know. And so meet somebody. Invite somebody who, who sits next to you for every week, but there's like three chairs in between, and that's just an impassable void for you to get through. Invite them to coffee. Invite them to your community group. Get to know them. Pray this week that we would be a church that those who come in look at what is here and they say, this is a church that loves each other. For this is a mark of a Christian. And conversely, there are believers who have great depths of relationship outside the church. And our church is better because of that. But... If you're a person who is a social butterfly outside the church, eager to invite in, eager to care, eager to serve, but when you come in here on the inside of these walls, you don't bring any of that, then this text might be showing you that there's something that God himself wants to help you with in your heart, that you might learn how to relate to your brothers and sisters in faith in a loving way. You see, outside the church, it's often easier to love people. Because outside of the church, it's the expectation that we love people who are like us. We love people who can provide us something. We love people who are an asset to us. But inside the church, we have the beautiful joy of loving those people who are different than us, but who share with us a faith in Jesus. And it's difficult and it's hard up until you see that we were once different from Jesus. Up until you once see that we were the outsiders, we were the unlovables, but Jesus came to us, Jesus called to us, Jesus dined with us, and more importantly, Jesus saved us. And when we see that Jesus has saved us, despite how far off we were, it's easier for us to bridge the aisles, literally, in the church and get out of our niches and meet those people who are around us. You see, there is wonderful unity in the church, unity that should be unparalleled in our world. When we are united to Christ in faith, we become united to people who are different than us in something that is based in nothing but love. 
Not in what they can give us. Not in what they can provide for us. Not to have a token friend of a certain station in life. But because the love of Christ actually increases our love for others. And in seeing this, two marks of gospel change... Paul says, you guys are believers. I see it. You believe in Jesus and you love one another. And so now I'm going to pray for you that you will continue to do Christian type things. And this is where he begins his prayer. And this is our second point, the prayer of the saints. So Paul sees these people as Christian. And so what is Paul going to pray for this church? Well, we see this in verses 16 through 18 in the first part of his prayer. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer for this church, amidst everything that's going on, is not that they might become more attractive. It's not that they might become more inclusive. But it's that they might know God better. That they might be drawn into a greater relationship with God. Have you ever thought about how simple and profound that simple request might be? That you might know God better. Despite all the fear, amidst all the uncertainty, amidst all the chaos of life, Paul's prayer is that we as believers would have a greater knowledge of God in the midst of all of that. Now, there's an important question here that we have to ask ourselves, and that's how do we know God? What does it actually look like to have this knowledge of God that Paul is talking about? In fact, it's not long after these books are written that there became these mystery religions that said, this is where you get knowledge. This is the secret knowledge. And, and if you can reach these specific things, then you know God. But there's no secret to knowing God. So the question still stands, how do we do it? What does it look like? When it comes to us growing in our knowledge of God, um, I think we have a tendency to think of it uh, as a scene that I remember from the movie The Matrix. In the Matrix, there's Neo, who's the main character, and they're training him to be a fighter. And so they download, like, this data patch into his mind. And all you see is you see him standing there. And then at one point, his face remains unchanged, and he just goes, I know Kung Fu. Just like that. But that's not at all how we come to know God. And yet, there are many places in our life where we inadvertently assume that to be the case. You could perhaps hear the gospel. At Sovereign Hope, we define the gospel as this, the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And you could hear that, and you could understand the words I'm saying. We were sinners. Jesus saves us. He's restored us to God. That's the gospel. I know it. I know the words. I know God. Or... You could be a person who loves theology. I love theology, but that's not sufficient. You could read books mining the depths of God as poured out in Scripture and in the minds of the saints that God has given to us. You could recite the Apostles' Creed from memory. You can have multiple volumes of systematic theology on your shelf, and you could follow Paul's exegetical rhythm through his epistles, and you could say, I know God. Or you could look into the eyes of your lover. 
You could be fishing on Rock Creek. You could be backpacking in the Barb Marshall. You could be eating the world's finest hot wing. And you could say, I know God. And while all of these things can help us understand who God is, none of those things are what Paul is talking about in this text. Paul is praying for something uniquely exclusive and wonderfully precious. Look back at what he's saying in verse 17. That the God of our Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That means that God wants us to know him in two ways, relationally and in the way that God has revealed it. Relationally and in the revelation which God has provided. Relationally, God wants us to know us through his spirit that he gives us. There are all sorts of things that the Holy Spirit does as we see in Scripture, but some of the more primary things, the more consistent things, is that God gives us the Holy Spirit to remind us the things about Christ, to encourage us, to urge us on, to pull us more and more into Christ-likeness. It is the whisper of God put in our heart as an extension, the very third person of the Trinity, God himself, in our hearts. Have you ever had a relationship with a friend where at some point you realize that your relationship has changed the way you act. Maybe you start dressing more like your friend, talking more like your friend. Maybe you work out in the same way your friend works out. That's change and that's knowledge expressed through a relationship. That's us. No one came and gave you a handbook to be my friend. This is what you do and then you'll know you're my friend. It's through the relationship you share that we begin by watching, by learning, to reflect those things in us. And so God has given us a handbook, but you could read the Bible till you're blue in the face and it won't change you unless you have God's Holy Spirit. But when you have God's Holy Spirit inside of you, he begins to change us as we know God relationally, as we understand who he is and what he has given to us. It's real knowledge applied relationally. But also, we know God through his own revelation. Not through any ways or means. There is a way where God wants to be made known. There's a specific way that God has revealed himself to us. Now, because he's God, he can reveal himself to anyone in any way and at any time. There are crazy stories of, of, uh, in Muslim cultures where the gospel has not been, where Muslim men and women have dreams and visions of Jesus, and they hear the gospel in a dream, and they repent, and they believe, and they're saved. God can do that. Praise God that God can do that. But more certainly, God has promised to reveal himself in one place at all times. And that place that is promised at all times to show us who God is, is the revelation of himself in his word. God has given us a way in which he wants to be known. Where he is privileged and said, this is where you can come and meet me and know me. You see, anyone can write a biography on my wife. They can talk to her family, they can talk to her friends, they can talk to her employers, and it would probably be a more factual and detailed account of her life than even I could provide. But they still wouldn't know my wife like I know my wife. Why? Well, for two reasons. The first is because my wife has chosen to reveal herself to me in a way and in a place she hasn't anyone else. And that's not just sexually, that's relationally. 
She has chosen to reveal herself to me as my wife and to me and me alone. That people might be able to look at and see, but there's an exclusive place where she has chosen to give it to her beloved. And secondly, is that I can experience, as I experience my wife, the truth of all of her biographers, my wife has so many biographers, The truth of all of those biographers actually become felt in the context of my relationship with her. Truth matters. You should learn theology. But when theology is met with the relationship, there's a different sort of knowing that happens. When God's revelation is not just words on a page, but revealed in a relationship, things change. When I read about my wife's generosity, I don't just understand her as generous, but I've experienced her generosity. I don't just hear her as being lovely, but I've been loved by her. This is the distinction of coming to know God in his place, at his call, is that we would read and understand in the context of a relationship. This is what leads Paul to use what's really an awkward metaphor, where he says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart, not the eyes of your face, Not the eyes of your mind, but the eyes of your heart. You see, the gospel unites us in love towards others, but it also enlightens us to understand things that are beyond ourselves. And those are two buzzwords that our culture wants desperately. And they sacrifice many, many things to get there. But here, unity and enlightenment are provided richly in the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that deals with the sin that divides us and the sin that distracts our hearts. It's only the gospel where we can rightly see one another and rightly be enlightened on what God has done for us. And Paul is praying that we would become, as believers, this sort of special society. A society which is right with God and right with others. That by God's grace, that's the only thing we see here. It's not our effort. Paul is praying that God would do this by his own grace. That as we walk with God, we'd be united to him more and more every day. In fact, look at what Paul said last week in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He's picking up mid-thought. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So Paul says it is God's great goal for the whole of time that all things would be united in Christ. And then we see Paul's specific prayer, his prayer for you today. That you too, in your life, would become increasingly united to God as well. There's two quick points of application here before we move on. The first is that as we pursue these things that God has given us, things like prayer, things like Bible reading, things like talking with one another, I want us to practice this prayer and consider this prayer, this prayer that God would grant to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So that when we go to pray, we don't just pray because the Bible says we should pray. But we pray knowing that God wants to know us and that God wants us to know him. And when we read our Bible and we're studying God's word, we're not just studying it to just understand context or to understand theology, but that context and theology would be rightly applied so that God might grant us to see bits and pieces of who he is. That we might understand the God who stands behind our scripture calling us to come and know him, to experience him, 
And so for me, in my daily devotions, I always start with this weak and feeble prayer of, God, whatever I'm about to read, may I see you in it. May I know you more. And so as we pursue those things, do those things, pursue those things, but pray that we actually come to know God through it. And second, may we be a church that frequently prays this prayer for others. We're a church that loves discipleship. We love Bible study. We love reading other books. We love talking about this in all of life. But here's what we need to see. Is you can continue meeting in your discipleship context. You can continue reading the books that you want to read. But unless God changes the heart of the person you're meeting with, nothing changes. And so let's do all that God has called us as the church to do. But let us pray that God works this miracle of grace in our hearts, in the hearts of our friends, so they might see and understand God through the gospel in a way which we cannot work on our own. As Paul prays that we might experience these things, his tone begins to change in verse 18. He goes on to say, if God does this, if God gives you, if he enlightens your eyes, if he gives you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, then you will come to know for certain these things. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so that word know that Paul's using, that you may know, he's saying not these things might happen, but he's saying if God grants you these things, you know these things for certain. You will know these things, not completely, but you will know that they are certain. You will have total confidence in what I'm about to talk about, that God would actually embed these truths into your heart in a way where you can bank your life on them. And so Paul now begins to move into the third part of this where he talks about uh, what's our third point today, the privileges of the saints. Three truths that are a privilege that when God is gracious to us, when he opens our eyes to see, when he enlightens our hearts to understand, that we may know these things which are of a rock-solid benefit to our life, that we can bank our lives on these. And what's interesting is these three truths that Paul is going to talk about are three truths that we're quick to forget today. There are three truths that can often dwell distant and dormant in our minds. But what Paul is showing here is that when we know God, when we're actually gaining our understanding of who God is, it always has a practical application in our life. It always changes things. If we love prayer and we love Bible study and we love reading another reading other things, if we love serving people, but it's not changing us, then we actually don't love any of those things enough. Because if those things are meant to lead us to God, God does change us. It makes it practical. It changes our affection. It produces relational change, practical hope, and heartfelt worship. And I'm going to read this passage that shows these three privileges of the, of the saints. But what I want to do is I want to give you guys the answers before we move on. In the text, you're going to hear Paul introduce each of these by saying what is or what are. And what we're going to see as these three privileges is we're going to see what is the hope to which you are called, what is the glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable power of God. So we see these in verses 18 through 23. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first privilege we see here is that the believer would know the hope to which God has called you. That the believer may know the hope to which God has called you. Everyone loves the idea of hope. It's one of those words that we just put in big letters on the wall of our house. Hope. Everyone loves it. But more often than not, we find ourselves easily and often disappointed by it, don't we? The job isn't what we hoped for. The adventure didn't provide what we were longing for. It didn't satisfy us. Our hope didn't do what it was supposed to do. But as we come to know God more and more, we know more and more the certainty of our hope. We distance ourselves from disappointment. Because God has called us to a new life. He has called us to life everlasting. He has called us to a life of holiness. And all we have to do is look at Jesus to see how concrete and how certain that hope is. Jesus died for our sins. But then he came back to life. He rose again in a new body. He ascended up into heaven and sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. You see, when Christians talk about hope, it is very much what Hebrews talks about, where faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of things we do not see. And yet, we also have a cheat code of hope. Jesus. He has proved everything that we've hoped for in human history. He died and rose. He lived Beautiful, perfect obedience, full satisfaction in the glory of God, ascended up into heaven where he sits. There is nothing more certain than the Christian hope because Christ himself has not only enabled it by his sacrifice for us, but he has promised that it is true and certain. If our hope is in this world, we will face disappointment. But hope that now, in this moment, we could be made new in Jesus. Hope that one day Jesus will make all things new in and of himself. It provides for us a hope which cannot be crushed, even though the world itself wages war against it. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 8, right? A passage you've probably heard before, Romans 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying this unshakable hope in Christ is the privilege of a believer that you know in the hardest times of life that there is yet hope, hope which cannot be taken. But there's hope now in the immediate too. And this is the second privilege that Paul gives. And this is the privilege defined as the glorious inheritance. Read with me again Ephesians 1 verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There's something really remarkable in this text. And it's actually kind of this, what Paul is saying in this verse that's going to shape the tone of the rest of the letter that he's going to write and that we're going to slowly walk through together. Paul says that you should know 
Undoubtedly so. The riches of God's immeasurable inheritance in the saints. The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, it's true that there are other places in Scripture where the church is described as God's own inheritance. It is something that he takes and he delights in. And this is true. This is wonderfully true. God didn't need to save anyone. God was not obligated to save anyone. Which means God wanted to save you. Isn't that amazing? That God would have been just as holy, just as perfect, just as pure if he made this world and he told them where life was and the world sinned and rejected him and God would have been wonderfully true, beautiful, holy and amazing to just let the world follow what it wanted to do. But God entered into our midst. He chose to tie his will, his pleasure, his passion in the salvation of his people. That is a loving God, a God who came to us not because he was deficient, a God who came to us not because he was needy, but a God who came to us because he is loving. He wants to save you. If you're not a believer today, and God is working in your heart, this God lovingly wants you. He wants you to know his glory and his beauty, and he wants you to find life in making much of him while you are yet here. That's beautiful, and that's not at all the point of this text. You see, actually, the inheritance that Paul is speaking to is almost more unbelievable than that. He's not saying that the church is God's own chosen possession for himself. Instead, he is saying that God has left you a rich and glorious inheritance In the saints. Paul wants you to know with great certainty the blessing that God has given to you in the fellowship of his people. Last week, Paul talked about inheritance looking forward, that one day at the end of all things we will obtain an inheritance. But now Paul's looking here in the immediate, and he is reminding you of where you can go to understand God's great riches, his great passion. For you, where is the inheritance that God has left his people in this day? The church. It's in the saints. This is why the author of Hebrews warns us and encourages us to not neglect meeting together. It is in the lives of believers and in their gathering together that God has given us to experience the riches of his inheritance. Do you understand that? Even for me this week, this was a truth that I didn't fully understand. Paul says something, and he's actually going to expound this more in chapter 3. But that God is saying, if you want to experience the richness of my inheritance, look among the saints. How many of you have gotten to go to like Disney World or tour some rich man's home, and you're just so excited to go and see? How many of you last night were like, oh my goodness, church is in the morning. We get to see the most amazing thing the world has ever seen. We get to see a community of people who are dead and who are now alive. We get to see people who are broken, but by power, unrivaled in human history, is changing broken people to complete people. Where those who were once unlovable are being loved by a merciful God. Where God is transforming a society, small, isolated, often oppressed into something beautiful, valuable, and wonderful. 
Do we see that, though? Because the truth is, for some of us, it may sound silly. That this is the inheritance. Big package, we open it, and we're like, oh, seriously, that's the best you could do? And it's true. The church is not perfect. But God has chosen to love it perfectly. God has chosen to bless this imperfect mess in a way that nothing else in this world is blessed. That we might understand the privilege of coming here. It is only in the West we're gathering together as God's church is seen as something trivial and mundane. In most of the world, people risk their lives going to church. And it's not because they like the music. It's because they want a glimpse of that hope which has been promised. They want to behold together with people with weak knees, with scars both real and spiritual, to behold the center of their hope together, to be labored on by the power of the Holy Spirit, and helped by the encouragement of his holy people. That we might know that as simple and as uneven as our walls might be, that this is the closest to heaven we will be this side of death. That this is a place where we gaze at the glorious inheritance of God and we try to live not as our world ordains it, but as God ordains it. And lastly, and more profoundly, Paul wants you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Verses 19 through 23. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As outrageous as it is that Paul would look at what you have right here and say that this is the glorious riches of God's inheritance, he doesn't stop there. It becomes more outlandish. One theologian says that uh, this is the craziest thing we would ever believe, but it's true. That here, God calls us to know not just God's power, not just God's great power, but God's great immeasurable power, and not just that we might understand God's great and immeasurable power, but did you notice what it says? That you might understand God's great and immeasurable power towards you who believe. Towards you. And even more, did you miss it? He doesn't just want you to know that God's great, immeasurable power is towards you who believe, but he also wants you to see that he exercised it according to his great might. If there's one thing that God has been made me aware of in the last few months, it's of my powerlessness, my weakness. And I imagine that all of us have been places where we become disheartened and disappointed because nothing goes according to plan. Things are never as smooth as we would expect it, never as easy as we would have dreamed. But this text is a warm blanket to all of us who feel the limitations of our humanity. That all the power of God has been availed for our good 
towards those who believe. Name a religion that promises a God like that. Just last week, we looked at how it, this, this life is not about us. This book is not about how lovely we are. It's about how beautiful and magnificent God is. About how glorious in all of his splendor this God is. And yet part of God's glory is his goodness and his power towards us. Do you understand that? That this glorious, cosmic, divine being in all of his strength and splendor has directed the fullness of his resources towards your weaknesses. That God is for you. Towards you he has directed his power. And look at what Paul proves this with. Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 20. And what are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now let's consider this for a moment. Here Paul's praying for us, and all of a sudden the narrative changed, and now he's talking about Jesus. And here we have Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the one who became flesh and lived as the God-man on earth who died for our sins and went to the cross, and he bore not his own sin, because he had none, not just his disciples' sin, not just the sin of those who were alive during his period, but this Jesus, this God-man, this Savior, would bear the sins of every believer across all of human history. And the wages of those sins, individual, comprehensive, and innumerable, is death. No one was more wrought with death than Jesus was. And in a moment of glory, God raised him from the dead. Consecutive life sentence after life sentence after life sentence laid on the shoulders of our Savior. But death was twine to God's holy fire. Sin was kindling to God's greater glory. Risen from the grave, restored to life, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, our world has never seen an output of power like the power which raised Jesus from the dead. But did you see that Paul said that same power, the same force, that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you to new life and faith. That same power that raised Jesus saves us. That's overkill. You could talk about bringing a knife to a gunfight. This is bringing an ice cream sandwich to global thermonuclear warfare. Our sins, our problems, our weaknesses, as big, as vast, as dirty as they might be, are nothing compared to the power of God and his salvation. It does not stand a chance 
The same salvation that took care of the sin of the whole world is more than capable of taking care of your sin. In grace, you are embarrassedly overdressed for every occasion. You stand robed in riches that make people jealous of who you are because God has loved you and placed your love on you. And our joy is to invite others to that closet, to invite others to put on what only Christ has given. Do you believe that when you feel isolated or at distance from God, that God is always and forever in your corner because Christ has purchased you with power irrevocable and unchallenged? That God, his power in your weakness, in your sin, in your frustration, God's power is towards you who believe. You see, living in this world means that you will come face to face with weaknesses and hardship. But Paul, in the midst of that, is calling us to come face to face with God himself and to realize what great power he has given us in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And this is the hope Paul leaves for the church in verses 20 through 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, when I was studying this text this week, it was humbling and embarrassing to see how passionate God is for us. That God has chosen not only to save us, but that he has given us what we looked at last week, every blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. God has held out for you a certain hope. God has graciously given you, even now in this brokenness, a broken but redeemed place in the church to gaze at his glory together. God has flattened us with his loving and immeasurable power in Christ. And here we see that Jesus has been given over and triumphed over all things. For what challenge can be posed to the man who beat death itself? And that Jesus, unrivaled, undead, and unthreatened, has been given as a head to the church. Make no mistake. We looked at this in Matthew. The Bible makes it really clear that the church will face obstacles, trials, and sufferings, but also makes it very clear that the church will endure. There will be times where we are considered the most pitiable of all people, but the unrivaled Christ is our head. He's not the head emeritus like you might have at a university, a professor who is there for a long time that always gets a chair but never shows up to work. He's not the honorable head, like we're really grateful for what you did to establish us. We're going to hang a portrait and we're going to remember you as the head of this organization. He is the head in the truest sense of the word. He controls, he leads, he guides, he cares for his whole body with unparalleled power. For centuries, physical buildings and eternal people have been slain by wicked men. And yet the church has continued to grow. Christ's ruling head endures us. And because 
the ruling Jesus is our head, it means that we as the church never have to compromise for our longevity. The success of the church is not in distancing itself or severing itself from its head. That's counterproductive. But it's learning to trust, to rely, and to stay connected to the one who has triumphed over all things. To be on the side of this church is to be on the right side of history. And in writing to this church, Paul is calling for us to to see how enlightened eyes find hope at every turn in the gospel of Jesus. That in our moments of greatest need, when we know God in our relationships, we know the certainty of him in every place. And when we experience the certainty of him in every place, we just know him to be more lovely. And the more lovely he becomes, the more certain we are in our hope. And the more certain we are of our hope, the more we see him as worthy of praise. It becomes this wonderful circle of knowing and experiencing, of worship and trusting, of believing and glorifying. But this is lived out, not in the pages of a book, but in the life of a church. This is what God has given us to know, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened that we may be different in our occupations, in our hopes, and in our love because we've been given to know a loving God who has bound all things in Christ and worked his immeasurable power for us as individuals and as the church. So let us walk together in this power with each other for this God. And may he be glorified in our gathering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you continue to do in this body what you have done and are doing in so many bodies across the globe and across history. That you might simultaneously accomplish great things through your church, but that your church might be increasingly eager to know the God who saves them to trust, to hope, and to act in accordance to what is certain. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that bear these marks, these marks of faith in what we know and love because of what we know. We love you, Lord. Only you can do what this text requires, which is why Paul prays, which is why we pray. So may it be so. We pray this in your name. Amen.